Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, today you're going to hear a number of talks, um, many of which have to do with the structural specializations of the human brain, specializations of cells, uh, specializations of connectivity. What I want to talk about instead, even though I'm an anatomist, uh, not a physiologist, I want to talk about s- some specializations of human physiology. And most of the evidence for these um, specializations is indirect, and my path to them will seem perhaps a bit indirect as well. I want to start by talking about the distinctiveness of human aging. These are respectively the oldest well-documented human being and the oldest well-documented chimpanzee. Now, when I talk about the distinctiveness of human aging, I don't want you to think that I think everything about human aging is distinctive. It's very clear that we share a lot of aspects of, of aging uh, with other primates and with other mammals. These pictures make some of those differences abundantly clear. We both get gray and withered and arthritic and all that nasty stuff. But despite these common features of aging, there are important differences as well. And, and one of the most profound differences, I think, is that Madame Camon here lived to be 122 years and 144 days old, and chimpanzee Bula died at age 59 years. And that, that's the oldest chimpanzee that we have. Now, this seems to be, these are extreme cases, but in general, it, it does seem to be the case that humans have the potential to live much longer than do other primates. Um, we are actually among the, the longest-lived mammals. Now, assessing lifespan is, is, is difficult, it's problematic. Maximum lifespan is one measure that people use. Of course, I just showed you that it's 122 in humans and not 100, but... Um, so, that, so every time you use that metric, you're, you run the chance that somebody is going to outlive it. But you can also look at median lifespan, which is a little more resistant to outliers, and you get much the same result. So it's important also to recognize that, that these differences in longevity are not artifacts of modern medicine or nutrition. If you look at survivorship in hunter-gatherer societies, which are represented in the, in the upper lines in this graph, and compare them to survivorship in wild populations of chimpanzees, which are in the lower line in this graph, humans clearly have a longevity advantage. And if you visit hunter-gatherer communities, you will find that there are people there who are in their 60s and 70s. So life expectancy uh, is not the same as lifespan. Of course, life expectancy numbers are, are strongly biased by, by infant mortality and early, early life mortality. So, so what? So, uh, you know, mammals all age. It's a, it's a, it's a general phenomenon of, of mammals. And perhaps it's just the case that human, the human lifespan is, is merely a, a stretched-out version of a chimpanzee or a generalized primate or mammalian lifespan. And that's a very pe- appealing idea. It's an appealing idea, particularly to people who study model animals, like rats or mice or monkeys, think of them as models of humans. It's... it's, it's challenging to, for them to think that there's something unusual about humans. But I want to argue that, that there, there is likely something very unusual about human, human lifespan. If you just consider, for example, the reproductive period of, of females, the, the time between puberty and, and menopause, humans, human females have about the same span of reproductive life as chimpanzees do, maybe even a little bit less. And humans, 
have this very, human females have this very extended period of post-reproductive life. What evolutionary sense does it make uh, to preserve individuals who are not contributing to the gene pool? This is a potential evolutionary paradox. And the way this paradox is usually addressed, there are a variety of flavors of theories about this, but they all boil down to this. It makes sense to keep elders around if they can enhance their fitness by enhancing the fitness of their children. And so the idea is it's good to have grandmothers around, possibly grandfathers too, because they can contribute to the upbringing of of their children's children, either by contributing resources or contributing knowledge, something of that sort. And and this intergenerational transfer is is a quite distinctive feature of, of human beings. So I want to argue, first of all, that humans are exceptionally long-lived and that we were selected in evolution for longevity, that there was positive selection for longevity. The second point I want to make is a seemingly quite trivial one, but it's still very important, and that is that human brains are extraordinarily large. I don't think I need to belabor this point, but the human point is up here. If we, we know that brain size is influenced by body size, so when we consider the brain size of an animal, we want to sort of factor uh, body size out of it. But for mammals of our size, humans are an outlier. We have bizarrely large brains. And an even simpler way to look at this is to compare human brain size to that of chimpanzees. Adult chimpanzee body size overlaps that of adult humans quite a bit, and yet our brains are about three times the volume of chimpanzee brains and about 13 times the volume of rhesus macaque brains, animals that are commonly used as models for humans. You know, great, a big brain. You know, that's the, obviously that's a very good thing, um, and it is, we hope, in many ways, but it also has its downside. Brains are very expensive tissues. If you look at the proportion of body mass occupied by, say, the brain and by skeletal muscle, uh, the brain represents a relatively small fraction of body mass uh, compared to muscles, but, but the energetic cost of the brain is about as high. So brains are very expensive metabolically, just brain tissue alone. Then when you consider how large the human brain is compared to that of of chimpanzees or other primates, you realize it's a tremendous energetic load to carry. And it actually gets worse than that. And to explain how it gets worse than that, I, I need to talk a little bit about the relationship between body size and metabolism across a large group of animals. So this is, represents work by several generations now of, of comparative physiologists. And they, what they do is they consider the size of the organ, uh, organism and they measure its metabolic rate, usually, usually basal metabolic rate, and they plot out these log-log plots. And what you find is that in log-log space, there's a fairly linear relationship between body size and and metabolism. The interesting thing is this works not only for body size, but also for the size of organs, and even, I I am told, the the size of organelles within cells. So this is quite a robust phenomenon. The interesting thing is that as, as size increases, metabolism increases, but the rate at which metabolism increases doesn't quite keep up with the rate of size increase. So the slope of this line is less than one. What that means in in, in more concrete terms is if you take metabolic rate and divide by size, brain size or body size, what you get is a measure of the amount of, or the rate of metabolism, in this case, oxygen consumption, 
rate of metabolism per unit of tissue. And because this slope is less than one, every additional unit of tissue that you add to a structure means that every one of those units runs at a slightly lower level of, of, of metabolism. So as brains or bodies get bigger, every unit of tissue uses less energy. So a gram of mouse is energetically much more active than a gram of human. That's the, the key idea here. Now, how expensive are human brains in terms of, of their metabolic activity? Well, we have a method now that we can use to study this, and, and it's a nice method because we can use it in humans and we can use it in animals. It involves imaging brains with positron emission te um, tomography, which is a technique that measures radiation in the brain. What we can do then is we can give subjects, humans or animals, a radio-labeled glucose analog that's taken up in the brain and stored there uh, temporarily at a rate that's proportional to metabolic rate. So what you get from the PET camera is a picture of how much radiation there is in a tissue, which is a measure of how rapidly that tissue is using glucose. We have measurements from these sorts of techniques from a variety of different mammals, including rodents and rats in particular, also rhesus monkeys, and no surprise, rhesus monkeys have much bigger brains than rats, and their metabolic rate per unit of tissue, where here the unit is 100 grams, their metabolic rate per unit tissue is much lower than that of rats, even though their brain overall is using a lot more energy. So where should humans lie in, this, in these graphs? Well, you know, humans have much bigger brains than rhesus macaques, so their brains ought to be down here somewhere. In fact, uh, the published literature on this suggests that the, the tissue-specific human metabolic rates are about equal to or perhaps even higher than those of, of rhesus monkeys. That's quite remarkable. So the third point that I want to stress is that human brains run hot, hotter than expected. Now, again, um, you might think that running hot, just like having a large brain, those are good things. And presumably, the reason that human brains are running hot is because they're doing more of the things that brains do. They're making connections. They're, they're instantiating systems of neural inter, interconnections that um, instantiate our cognitions and perception and so forth. They, presumably, these things are giving our cognitive abilities some sort of oomph, to use a technical term. <laughs> Um, we don't really, however, have good direct evidence that this is true. I don't know of a lot of direct measurements of, of, uh, of, of neuronal activity at a, at a cellular level that you can use to compare humans to chimpanzees or, or rhesus macaques. But there are some kinds of indirect evidence that bear on this, and some of this evidence come from comparative genomic studies, which look at, at levels of gene expression in the brain across species. Recently, there's been more work on protein and metabolites, and I think that they, they make a coherent story. And that story is that um, among the genes that are um, most affected or most changed in human evolution are genes that are involved in energy metabolism, synaptic activity, synaptic plasticity, things like that. So there is some additional indirect evidence to indicate that, in fact, our, our brains are doing more of these things that brains do. A good thing, right? But there's a downside. Um, just as there's a downside to having a big brain, 
a brain that runs too hot comes with certain liabilities. And one of the major liabilities is vulnerability to oxidative stress. So what is oxidative stress? Well, when tissues burn glucose and oxygen, they generate certain destructive molecular byproducts. These are called oxidants. They're things like superoxide or hydrogen peroxide. They're also known as reactive oxygen species. They're also sometimes called free radicals, which has a, a, a nice sort of political sound to it, but it really has nothing to do with politics. Um, these reactive oxygen species damage cells and tissues. They, they, they damage proteins. They damage lipids. They damage damage DNA. So they're very destructive. And um, one would think that the human potential for oxidative stress in the brain is enormous, because not only are our brains running hotter, but when you consider how much longer we live than rhesus monkeys or chimpanzees, that the total lifetime um, glucose consumption is about three times that of rhesus monkeys, for example. And when you consider that, you know, Humans have these um, neurons which are not replaced during life. You know, we can go 80 years running at a very, very high rate of metabolic activity, and yet somehow our cells manage to survive this process. Or at least most of the time, they seem to survive this process. Oxidative stress is thought to be one of the major factors in aging generally, and it's thought to be in involved as well in... in um, creating the conditions for neurodegenerative disease. And it's very interesting that among primates, um, age-related neurodegenerative diseases seem to be largely confined to humans. The best case, the best documented case, is Alzheimer's disease, which is a disease that produces a profound degeneration of both gray matter and white matter, leaving you with a brain that looks quite shriveled compared to a normal brain. And there are no documented cases of Alzheimer's disease in, in non-human primates. In fact, some of the microscopic pathological signs that occur fairly early in Alzheimer's disease, we don't see those in non-human primates either. So one possible downside of having a brain that runs hot is that it can burn up and, and leave you in a, in a very bad state. Now, even if you manage to duck Alzheimer's disease, unfortunately, there, there is no way out completely. Even in normal aging, humans seem to undergo a fairly profound decline in neural tissue, both in the gray matter and the white matter. And the white matter differences probably actually have more to do with cognitive decline than the gray matter uh, ones do. The gray matter changes are, are really not, not uh, very striking until you get or don't seem to have as close a relationship to, to cognitive decline. Uh, it's interesting that, that actually the amount of myelin that you have in your brain, this is the stuff in the white matter, the stuff around the axons that carry the electrical signals, um, it actually increases up to about midlife, up to your 40s, basically, and then it starts to, to tip over. And this is now a very well-documented uh, phenomenon for a number of different parts of the white matter. It's something that's very interesting about this the, even though the, the steep brain decline starts in the 40s, there isn't, in normal populations, much evidence of serious cognitive decline until after, till, till after age 60 or so. So for neuropsychological testing, as I understand it, that, that you can use the same norms for adults up to about age 60, and then you have to start renormalizing the data because you do start to get some, some decrements. This disparity between the onset of structural decline and the onset of 
behavioral decline or cognitive decline. And you see this as well in Alzheimer's disease, is that, that the, the pathological signs occur way before the, the, the onset of cognitive symptoms. This has been referred to as cognitive reserve or cerebral reserve. And, and I would echo Alan and colleagues in, in suggesting that this is an important phenomenon about, about human beings. It's, it's as though we overbuilt our brain so that we could keep it running um, when things started to go bad. So there's an upside uh, to, to higher metabolic rates. That upside is enhanced levels of neural activity and plasticity, we think, although this is, again, the evidence is, is indirect. There's a downside as well, increased vulnerability to late-life neural and cognitive decline. The mystery to me is how is it that, that we manage to postpone this decline for so long? And I don't think this is something that neuroscientists have really addressed as a specifically human problem. One can imagine several ways in which evolution has acted to help us postpone decline for as long as we can. One is, as I mentioned, overbuilding the brain, this idea of cerebral or cognitive reserve. The second is that we might enhance the protective and repair mechanisms in the brain. So, for example, we, we have oxidative stress because we produce these oxidants. Well, there are certain molecules that bodies produce to protect themselves, antioxidants, which I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of. We could also look to glial mechanisms because the glia are sort of the damaged party of the brain, and there might be aspects of glial function that have been modified in human evolution. We might actually increase the tolerance for damaged cells. Now, often when, when, when cells are damaged, they, they undergo programmed cell death, the idea being you remove dysfunctional cells. But removing cells can have bad consequences. So maybe we just have a little more tolerance for cells that are a little wonky. That's another technical term. Um, finally, these mechanisms of plasticity that, we, that we've been discussing might, might actually interact with cerebral reserve, and so that as, as our brains decline, we can continue to fine-tune them so that they can work appropriately or optimally with the resources that remain. Thank you. phenomenally present, feel unified, and, uh, and yet we are all the product of this very modularized and specialized brain. And with each uh, year, passing year in neuroscience, we find not only are these modular, specialized systems sort of going on 24-7 and all the time, but every time we look at a particular system, we look within it and see another subsystem, and we look within that subsystem, and we see yet another subsystem, and we finally get the idea that evolution is pushing information out towards the periphery to the local module so that the computations and calculations that go in that make us uh, do what we do are more and more uh, peripheral. That's great. Except that it has this other problem associated with it, which was pointed out by Leibniz many years ago, that uh, as you study the parts uh, you, and you know more and more about the parts, you may forget what the entire mill does. So if you study the parts of the mill, you may not know what the function of the whole mill is. And neuroscience and, uh, has sort of positioned itself uh, right there. 
where we have incredible knowledge about uh, the modular nature, the specializations, but how does it all uh, come together? And one of the ways that people are thinking about it, of course, is that we think about it in terms of layered systems. And to take it at the most uh, uh, macroscopic point that we think about the neural layer, layer somehow interacting with the mental layer, and it is trying to capture the interactions of those layers, which is the core of uh, cognitive neuroscience and neuroscience in general. And uh, that there is an interaction can be illustrated by a simple clinical example that uh, if you take someone who's depressed and give them psychotherapy, they get so far in the recovery. If you take the same sort of group and you give them uh, uh, therapeutic uh, pharmacological agents, they get so far, and you put them together and they get further. How does that top-down, bottom-up uh, interaction occur? And so we now know that uh, everything's complicated. Uh, we, used to, uh, we used to think it was real simple right here at uh, Salk, the, the, one of the great institutions who have, who have pointed the way in molecular biology. We, in the days of 1954 and 60s when we thought everything was simple, the world was simple, have given away to the fact that uh, everything is complicated and there's interactions and complex organization to everything. And it's true for neuroscience. For those of you who are in philosophy, philosophically inclined, I highly recommend Andy Clark's book called Supersizing the Mind, where he points out that not only are we trying to figure out the codes of the brain, but how we as humans start to put into the environment and take things from the environment in such a way that to ultimately construct uh, how we function in the world, it's an interaction of things and the brain and everything uh, in between. And so uh, this is realized in a wonderful series of studies also by Hod Lipson's group at Cornell, where he makes the essential point that is really uh, so profound that uh, if you really try to study the control of, say, the finger movement, neural analysis only takes you so far that, in fact, the dexterities of the finger are highly relied uh, on the actual mechanical structure, muscle system, and tendons uh, of the hand. So the brain kind of pushes knows that that capability is there and only codes how to do this only to a degree. So to look for the entire answer to how we are so dexterous within the neural code, you're going to miss the, the full story. So we get this big concept, modularity, and we're getting more and more of it. The question is, how do these modules interact? And I'm going to take you into the world of clinical uh, neuroscience and show you how we think about this in terms of uh, human patients. What I'm going to point to is the fact that once you understand the neurologic patients with lesion or split brains, as I've done uh, most of my life, uh, you come up with this notion that the modules interact and cue each other completely independently of a central command telling them what to do. That The system figures itself out. Now, what does that mean? What on earth does that mean? So let me show you. I'm going to first show you a, a clip here of a patient. And then you'll hear me giving the patient commands. And see if you can, have, if you can figure out at all what it is that's going on here. With your left hand, make a fist. With your right hand, make a hitchhiker gesture. Good. With your left hand, make a hitchhiker gesture. Good. <laughs> With your right hand, make a 
uh, no, with your left hand, make the motion of uh, like using a screwdriver. What was it? Which hand? A screwdriver with your left hand. You get the idea. I mean, you don't get the idea. How can you make sense of that? Well, if I tell you that, of course, was a, a patient, a split brain patient who had had her corpus callosum divided in order to separate the hemispheres to control epilepsy. So when I'm talking to her, you're, I'm talking to a split brain patient where the left hemisphere cannot really communicate with the right and the classic all the classic syndromes that have been known about this for years were true in her. So if you flashed a picture of two words like you see here, key and ring, she would say only saw the word ring, and yet with her left hand be able to, to retrieve the word key because that was the right hemisphere uh, guiding the left hand. And the right hand, of course, could go find the, the ring if asked or just say it. So you get the idea. They're a split brain patient. And also with split brain patients, when you look at their sensory motor nature, you come up with this simple story that the left hemisphere can control the right hand dominantly and through dominant cortical spinal systems. And it can, on the ipsilateral hand, on the left hemisphere trying to control the right hand, it kind of can get shoulder movement, but not the distal hand finger movements, right? So what you see in that patient is the whole story. And when I first say do something, her eyes are wide open. And so when she makes a gesture with her right hand, she sees it. And then when I tell her to make it with the left hand, she copies. She just looks at it and copies it, right? Now I say, make something with your left hand. This right hand no longer is a model. And because of the split brain and because of the weak nature of the ipsilateral pathway, the posture can't be made. So now watch the movie and it all becomes apparent. With your left hand, make a fist. With your right hand, Eyes make are open. a hitchhiker's gesture. Good. With your left hand, make a hitchhiker's gesture. Good. With your right hand, make a... Uh, no, with your left hand, make the motion of uh, like using a screwdriver. With a screwdriver with your left hand. Can't do it because the right hand has it, didn't get the command first, so the left hemisphere is trying to control the left hand and so forth. You get the idea. <laughs> All right, try it with your right hand. 
Get the idea. So it's uh, in, in studying patients, you got to make sure you're they're, they're answering the question you asked because they're goal oriented and they try to figure out how to get the goal achieved, even though there are all these discrete disconnections, which you know about and so forth. Now, here's another example from case J.W. And he <laughs> this is this is one of the greatest pieces of footage ever. Uh, uh, he, uh, uh, we're flashing words to him and we're giving him instructions to do something like draw uh, what you'll see. And uh, he does this thing. And, I, and now that you know about cueing, now you know about how inter- hemispheres are trying to cooperate with each other, even though they're disconnected. See if you uh, follow this. So classic, saw the flash, there's light, these are back in the days of carousel projectors and the light flash, but didn't see the actual word because we presented it in the left visual field, which only goes to his right hemisphere. And he's talking to you out of his left hemisphere, so he didn't see it, okay? I flashed the word Texas. Uh, goes with that. 
So it was, it was the word Texas as well, later on. I mean, you gotta, that is just fantastic. There, there, uh, it, this is another one where uh, we're flashing the word 1928 to his right hemisphere and the word car to his left hemisphere. And we don't, for t- sake of time, we show these some other time, uh, he draws a, a 1928 car. Now, how's he doing that? The cooperation is occurring through feedback and stop and starting with each hemisphere contributing it on the paper has nothing to do with inside uh, uh, things that are going on inside the brain. Uh, we can go on in, in other patients. So one, one of the findings that come out of MR research and language is that you always see in the standard little activation tasks, the classic language areas in the left hemisphere light up. But you very frequently see homologous areas on the right side uh, light up as well. They're not talked about, but there they are on, on the data. And it turns out in... Uh, Three of the split-brain patients that were heavily studied, over time they developed speech in their right hemisphere. So now you have a situation where you, the experimenter, when they're talking to you, kind of don't know who's talking to you. You know, is it the left brain or is it the right brain? So you have to be clever in how you uh, put together uh, and ask the question. And here's an example of a patient who does is able to speak out of both hemispheres. And you can see the self-cueing, the cueing that goes on in this example. What we're doing is going to show this patient the word breakfast. So break is going to the left field right hemisphere, and fast is going to the right field left hemisphere. And watch what she does with this dilemma, because she's split. Remember that. She's split, and each hemisphere is saying its thing. And then watch her correct herself. Watch. Get it? So she starts with break, but the left hemisphere now knows that the game is to put the words together and it's off fast, so she corrects uh, break to break so that she gets the word breakfast as the answer. So you see this constant cueing, constant cooperation between the hemisphere to complete the goal, to make it look like a, a whole process. So 
stuff works. Uh, uh, and we have all these modularized parallel systems working 24-7, and we like to infer that coming out of that is a unified uh, system. And uh, I don't have time to say, but there's lots of examples, of course, where uh, ad auctions on Google uh, seem to be, there's an auctioneer there, there isn't. Uh, cells work, there's no CEO for cells. And mines work, there's probably not a CEO for mines either. But there appears to be. And there's a system that uh, uh, I've talked about at length on other occasions uh, that in the left hemisphere that weaves the story together to make uh, the whole story. So I'll finish with um, one of the greatest neuroscientists ever to live, uh, Sir Charles Charrington, sort of captured this thing. 1937, which is a little annoying. Uh, but <laughs> so he writes here, how far is the mind a collection of quasi-independent perceptual minds integrated psychically in large measure by the temporal concurrence of experience. Its separate reserve of sub-perceptual and perceptual brain, if we may so speak, could account for the slightness of impairment following on some brain injuries. Thus, the slightness of disability following destruction or developmental failure or the great, of the great commissary is referring to the fact that uh, people born without a callosum don't seem to have these split effects. Between the two halves of the brain. Simple contemporaneity can conjoin them. So all these things in the end, like marbles cascading down or cooperating in anything, and out comes this wonderful thing called uh, human consciousness. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Primates come in different shapes and sizes. They share um, several things in common. One of them is the fact that they have a larger brain for their body size. Great apes and some other primates are known to be very skillful when it comes to exploring their natural environment. Primates are also known to live in very complex social environments. Based on that, it has been suggested that sociality may be a driving force in increases of primate brain size and also behind human cognitive complexity. The social environment is dynamic. There is learning and understanding of rules that's involved, political behaviors, alliances, deceptions. We all know about that. (laughs) Social complexity um, has been viewed Uh, in the context of group size or network size and has been uh, related to increases in brain size or increases in parts of the brain, like the neocortex. The question for us who study the brain is, in addition to the increase in absolute size, what is it in the neural circuitry that underlies social behavior that may have changed during human evolution? We have known for a long time that selected brain regions receive and process emotion-related signals. We have known that from work on experimental animals and also more recently with advances of non-invasive imaging techniques from the work on humans. What we have not known for a long time and what's a relatively new idea and quite revolutionary is the idea that if these brain regions are damaged, like uh, it was the case with Phineas Gage, then we have changes in our ability also to make advantageous decisions in personal, social, and financial domains. 
We know about this from an accumulating uh, body of data that comes from so-called lesion studies and also imaging studies. What we have on the board is an example of a brain that was lesioned in ways similar to that of Phineas Gage with a lot of damage on the ventromedial and orbital prefrontal cortex. So what is the neuroanatomy behind social cognition? There have been several areas that have been proposed as critical, areas that are interconnected, and if damaged, compromise social cognition. Some of the major areas are uh, listed on the board. They include the insula, Broca's area, and large parts of the prefrontal cortex, including the orbital cortex and the ventromedial, the ventromedial cortex. They also include the anterior cingulate and the amygdala. Now, social cognition, so the ability to properly interact in a social context, is compromised in uh, selected neurodevelopmental disorders, including autism. In autism, what we know about the brain of individuals who, who uh, have the disorder is that early in life, we have an overgrowth in brain size. So early in childhood, there is an overgrowth of the brain with a possible decline later in life. Now, this overgrowth does not happen homogeneously across the brain. It affects some areas more than others. Some of the areas affected, some of the areas behind this early overgrowth are the frontal lobe and to some extent the temporal lobe and the cerebellum, while other areas are compromised or affected in different ways, like the amygdala. We know that the amygdala, and specifically the, the lateral nucleus of the amygdala, which is a subnucleus within the structure, has numbers of neurons that are reduced in autistic adults. And you can see um, that data in red up here. Now, Williams syndrome is another disorder of interest in the context of social cognition. It is, it's a syndrome that's less known to the general public in comparison to autism, but um, it is caused by hemizygous deletion of about 25 genes in chromosome 7, uh, and that creates several physical, cognitive, behavioral, affective, and neurobiological aberrations. One thing that stands out in Williams syndrome individuals and that is of interest to my talk today, is the fact that Williams syndrome people are, have aspects of their social cognition especially enhanced. What you see on the chart here is different measures of sociability that compare Williams syndrome to typically developing <coughs> controls, Down syndrome, and autistic individuals. And as you can see, in all measures, they measure higher. Now, the overall brain volume in Williams syndrome is reduced, gray matter by about 11%, white matter by about 18%. And just like we saw with autism, uh, what happens with Williams syndrome is that uh, the reduction does not affect the brain in a homogeneous way. It affects different parts of the brain in different ways. Once again, the frontal lobe and the amygdala stand out as being enhanced in Williams syndrome. Uh, we plan, in collaboration with Ursula Bellucci and the team that she assembled, to look into Williams syndrome brains and try to explain 
what is it in the underlying circuitry that makes these brains slightly different than the other um, controls. So what is the comparative neuroanatomy of the social brain circuitry that um, I, will be, I will be reviewing? I'm going to be showing you some data. Uh, the distribution of gray to white matter, microscopic features of gray matter, including the distribution of areas within the gray matter, the density of neurons, the morphology of neurons, and finally, molecular makeup of specific uh, cell populations. So these are the directions in which my lab has been working and is planning to work in the immediate future. Um, it has been shown that the size of a neural region is related to its functional significance in mammals. So animals like mice that rely heavily on tactile input from whiskers have an enlarged sensory cortex. The ghost bat, a collocation, enlarged auditory cortex. The opossum, highly visual, enlarged visual cortex. In that spirit, it has been argued for a long time that the prefrontal cortex in the human brain, because it is involved and critical for so many complex cognitive functions, may have been differentially enlarged in humans as opposed to other primates. We looked into individual cortical areas within the prefrontal cortex, into some of them, and we found that although the entire frontal lobe as a whole, the entire frontal <coughs> cortex as a whole, is not differentially enlarged in humans when compared to the other apes, individual cortical areas within the prefrontal cortex uh, vary in size. So some frontal cortex areas are relatively larger, while others are smaller. This means that the distribution of areas in the gray matter differs. How about connectivity? There are local connections and there are long-range connections in the human and primate brains. A few years ago, we looked into some measures of local connectivity using structural MRIs and compared the amount of white matter that represents local connections against the amount of white matter that reflects long-range connections. What we found is that in the case of the human brain, when compared to the great apes, the local connections, the white matter underlying uh, the gyri, is actually increased. And we found that both in the frontal lobe and in the temporal lobe as well. So human brains have different distribution of white matter with increased local connectivity. How about the amygdala? The amygdala, you can see a cross-section here through the human brain. The amygdala are composed of several subnuclei that are selectively interconnected with other parts of the brain. This is a complex diagram um, that shows the basolateral uh, set of nuclei that are interconnected specifically with the isocortex, or as most of us uh, refer to it, neocortex, while other parts of the amygdala are connected to other structures, olfactory centers, or the brainstem of the nervous system. Now, in collaboration with Lisa Stefanacci, my student Nicole Barger in my lab did an extensive, detailed uh, analysis of the amygdala across humans and great apes. We know that the lateral nucleus is highly interconnected with specifically the temporal lobe cortex. What Nicole found is that the lateral nucleus is also differentially enlarged 
in humans when compared to the great apes, a finding that we did not have in any of the other parameters of the amygdala that we looked at. From previous studies that we had done using, again, MRI images, we had found that the temporal lobe is enlarged in humans as compared to the great apes. So unlike what we saw with the frontal, it is actually the temporal that seems to be larger. Now, this is of interest and raises the question on whether the argument that maybe evolution in the brain happens in the form of evolution of, of neural systems as opposed to individual structures has actually some validity and interest in this worth pursuing further, and we plan to pursue this further. Another uh, data set that um, sort of reinforces this argument in a way has to do with the orangutans. Um, several years ago, I had looked um, through MRI scans into the anatomy of the orbitofrontal cortex. And what I found, and later on joined by my student, Natalie Schenker, is that the orbitofrontal cortex in orangutans is actually smaller. It stands out. Nicole, who was looking at the amygdala, identified that the basolateral part of the amygdala is also significantly smaller in orangutans in contrast to what we see in other, in other apes. So these two structures that are selectively interconnected seem to be smaller in this species of great ape. Orangutans are known to be solitary, probably the most solitary of all anthropoids. They react less impulsively to food than chimpanzees. And, of course, that may have something to do with the fact that there is less competition for resources, which also is related possibly to the reduced size of their social groups. So again, an interesting uh, uh, line with respect to the argument of the evolution of neural systems, possibly. Now, density of neurons. We have known for a while uh, that bigger brains have more neurons, of course, but they also have decreased density in their neurons. And that the increase of the cortical sheet happens mostly in a horizontal dimension as opposed to in depth. What happens is that early in development, cells migrate to their positions in vertical arrays. So more vertical arrays, or mini-columns, <laughs> as some refer to them, means more cortical surface, and increased convolutions. In collaboration with Dan Baxhoveden, we hypothesized that humans would have larger mini-columns or larger spacing between the neurons when compared to great apes. So the question we asked is, is the spacing of the neurons and does the size of mini-columns predicted by overall brain size? And is the spacing the same among cortical areas within each brain? Kate Teffer, another student of mine, and I and Dambach Sovenen worked on this, on this question. And we sampled from the primary visual, primary somatosensory, motor, cortex, and then also from the prefrontal cortex, specifically area 10. Uh, this is a busy graph, and I want you only to focus on a couple of things for the purpose of this talk. The, uh, the unit here is microns, and in absolute terms, as you can see, Actually, the different species do not vary considerably when compared amongst themselves. So the gibbon, who is about 100 grams big, 
The mini columns in this animal are not considerably smaller than what we see in the human brain, where we have 1,300 grams or more of brain weight. But where we see the difference is in the prefrontal cortex. So humans have more space between neural bodies than apes in the prefrontal cortex, and not as much in other parts of the brain. So the, question to the, the answer to the first question is no. And no is the answer to the, se the second question as well. This is a hypothetical reconstruction that we did on the evolution of at least these parameters in the prefrontal cortex. And what we suggest is that the prefrontal cortex changes took place, took place after the last common ancestor with the chimpanzees. Now, what is the neurobiological significance of having increased spacing between neuronal bodies? Is the development in the prefrontal cortex different uh, in humans versus chimpanzees? Are there differences in branching morphology of neurons? What you see on the right is a picture of two pyramidal neurons and their entire dendritic trees. So if the difference between the cell bodies is larger, does this mean that we have increased arborization and that increased potential between neurons to talk to each other? There is a lot of work that has already been done on human tissue and also non-ape uh, smaller primate tissue that comes from other laboratories. But we're exploring this line of work in collaboration with Chet Sherwood um, on the development and the morphology to see if uh, apes and humans differ. The microcircuitry, is it altered in syndromes that affect aspects of social behavior? What we have here is a dendrite, so a, an arbor coming out of a neuronal body, and the spines that allow neurons again to communicate. Recently, uh, Carol Marchetto in Rusty Gage's lab have shown that human red syndrome cultured neurons have reduced number of synapses and dendrite spines compared to non-affected controls. The question for us now is, are synapses and spines enhanced in the social brain circuitry in Williams syndrome? And we plan to pursue this question in collaboration with this group and Alison Mortry and Ursula Bellucci. What is the molecular signature underlying differences in branching morphology of neurons? We have been capturing neurons from specific anatomical regions of the social brain circuitry in humans and apes in order to compare expression profiles of microRNAs using deep sequencing and bioinformatics analysis. Again, we're doing this in collaboration with Allison and Rusty Gage's group. From the fossil record, we have some information of interest to the evolution of the social brain. Some Australopithecines have distinct features in the frontal and temporal lobes that place them closer to humans than to apes or other extinct hominids. One of those Australopithecines is the recently described a uh, sediba. The orbitofrontal cortex in this endocast is organized in ways that are more similar to the human orbitofrontal cortex than to that of the apes. I don't have time to go into the details. Uh, I would like to close by saying that um, we have known that brain regions that receive and process emotion-related signals are critical for decision-making. This is a new idea. And this goes in contrast to the idea that has been very powerful for a long time, that the brain is organized in these simple three layers with a primitive brain in the middle, this 
completely freaked out woman in the, in the center and the rational brain on the top right. It follows the idea of the triune brain that places a focus on the cortex, and some call it now a corticocentric myopia. Uh, other structures, in addition to the cortex, need to be emphasized, and the evolution of the brain can no longer be viewed in the context of an orthogenetic ladder that leads to the perfection of the human brain. There are many more things that are going on. I would like to close with this slide and say that to me, human social brain evolution can be viewed as a dynamic mosaic, like the one you have on the left. Uh, it involves, in addition to increases in brain size, also alterations in the brain circuitry, including the social limbic brain. This is not a new idea, but now we start having the data to support it. And I would like to thank collaborators, my laboratory, and a special thanks to all the veterinarians across the U.S. zoos that have been providing us with post-mortem, non-invasively uh, AVE material. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.